The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello, and welcome to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I'm the host for this podcast. And this episode is episode number 226. I just want to remind you to please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And that includes YouTube because we have videos up on YouTube. We are videoing pretty much every interview we do. And subscribe to our channel and click on the thumbs up if you like our videos, which we hope you do. And also, if you would be so kind as to go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, and sign up for our email list. We won't spam you. We'll just let you know when new episodes have come out, just in case you missed it. Today, we're going to talk to a young woman named Emily Souther. Emily reached out to us because she wanted to tell her story. She is in recovery. She wants to share her story so as to help others, and it is her goal to do that all over the world. So let's talk to Emily Souther. Emily Souther. Thank you so much for being willing to tell your story on the podcast. You know, not everybody with a history of addiction wants to talk about it. And yet every time we tell a story, we know that it resonates with someone. So from me to you, thank you for being willing to talk about it. Oh, absolutely. I'm just so grateful to be here. Really grateful. So thank you. Awesome. So let's start at the beginning. Where did you grow up and how did your addiction story start? How did you get onto drugs? So I'm from Charleston, South Carolina. I live in Mount Pleasant and I grew up, you know, with a mother and a father who loved me unconditionally. And it started Um, so when I was younger in elementary school, I was a bigger kid and the teasing started when I got to middle school and I got picked on pretty heavily and I used food as comfort, but along with that, around the age of 15 and 16, going into like seventh grade, um, I I met some bad friends and I started smoking cigarettes. Well, I think I should back up. I started smoking cigarettes around the age of 12. And I would steal packs of cigarettes from my parents and hide behind the house, smoke cigarettes. And um, I had my first drink of alcohol when I was 14. And I remember it so clearly. I was at a house and it was Puerto Rican rum. And I remember they were like, I dare you to chug the bottle. And at 14, I chugged this bottle and I, it was, it was not a good experience. It wasn't like, oh, I want to do this again. I was so incredibly sick, but that was the first time I tried. I was going to say, just you talking about it's making me sick, Emily. You chugged the whole bottle of rum? I chugged like half a bottle. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Still. a big bottle and I remember I was laying back on the, this bed and my friends were surrounding me and I just I couldn't even speak I was so sick and the room was spinning and um but even after that you know I still drank you know after that you know yeah okay how did you then transition into drugs and what was your first drug so um so it's kind of strange, my story. So from 
14 to 16, I drank and I didn't do any drugs during that time. And um, when my parents got divorced when I was 15 and that impacted me pretty bad. Um, mm. It broke my heart. My brother and my sister handled it fine, but I didn't. Uh, and I was dating a guy that was much older than me. And it should, we shouldn't have been dating, but we did. And my mother and my sister moved to Hawaii. And I, my brother and I stayed here. But I decided I was moving out. I wasn't going to live with my father anymore. And so he couldn't control me back then. I was just wild. So I moved out at the age of 16. And I moved in um, with my boyfriend. And I went to work full time. I dropped out of high school. And I went to work for my dad. My dad owns a landscape company. And he said, Emily, if you're going to move out and you're going to come work, you're going to be an adult. And so that during that time, from 16 to about 19 or 18, I was pretty good. I, I didn't drink. I didn't do any drugs. I was responsible. I paid bills. Um, but slowly things started to change. I broke up with that guy and the friends I had started getting into drugs. And I had this one friend, I'll call her Ashley, um, who was very wild and she just did whatever she wanted to. And we started hanging out more. And after I broke up with that guy, I moved in with my grandmother and my grandmother, ever since I was little, she was we had this connection like i can't explain it and i remember she, one day she said that she came in and i was just a little baby and she looked in the crib and she said she looked at me and she just said there's something here and we have a special bond and i was just a little baby and so ever since then we were very close and i moved in with her and we, our bond just got stronger and stronger um but during that time i went to a party with my friend ashley and it was with her, her boyfriend, and another guy. And we were shooting pool at the house. And next thing you know, I see them pull out this bag. And, you know, they dump it on this little, um, it was a little tiny mirror like this. And they used a card and they were cutting it up. And she was like, Emily, come try it. And I was like, no, I'm good. I'm just going to drink. You know, that's not for me. And she kept asking me throughout the night. And finally, like halfway through the night, I was like, okay, fine, I'll try it. And I tried it. I didn't like it. It burned like crazy. Um, and it was cocaine. And it burned so bad. And she was like, just give it another try. You know, just try another line, smaller. So I tried it. And that time, I liked it. And instantly, I was like, yes, this is what I need. This is what I love. And from there, it went from only on the weekends and it slowly progressed to maybe every other day. And then it progressed to every single day. And I mean, it grabbed me so fast and I, I was just gone, you know? And you were how old at the time, Emily? So I would say 19. So this is a huge thing. I think probably with a lot of addicts is we have a lot of memory gaps mm. where I have sometimes, I can't remember when I did it and all of that. I remember like when the, the really bad time started and I remember when it got really good, but everything in between is kind of all jumbled up. <clears throat> Understood. Yeah. Understood. So carry on with your story and where it went from there. Cause it hasn't gotten really bad yet. Right? No, not yet. 
Um, well, it started to get bad. I met a, a dealer who I called my friend and I would, he would front me drugs. And during this time I was still working. I always worked, but it got to the point where I was bringing drugs to work, doing them on the job site. And I even had my dealer deliver it to me at a job site. Um, my dad found out, pulled me off the job. And then I just started stealing. So I had to go find another job. And so I would work in restaurants, but I started stealing items from my house. Um, whatever I could pawn, I would go back to my dad's house, find tools, whatever. And I would pawn it to get more drugs. And it was just a vicious cycle. And then after I left the restaurant, I, I told my dad, oh, dad, I'm clean. Can I please come back and work for you? And he was like, okay, as long as you're clean. So I came back to work for my dad. Um, and I was living at my grandmother's and, um, my brother had gone off to college and he had called me and he was crying and he was like, Emily, please come get me. I'm so homesick. I want to come home. And so I was like, okay, I'll come get you. And I got my friend Ashley and I was like, come with me. Let's go pick up my brother from Asheville. We'll get some drugs on the way. And on the, I didn't have enough money. And so, and and this is, you know, it was only just past three years that I actually told the truth about what happened. And the truth of what happened is I wanted to go to my grandmother's house to steal money out of her purse because she always had a lot of money in her purse. And it didn't matter how much I loved her. It didn't matter because the drugs had me. Um, so on the way to her house, uh, my friend was driving and we pulled in and her dog, Dixie, I found Dixie in the woods many years prior and my grandmother adopted her. And Dixie, as soon as she saw the car pulled in the driveway, she got up and she, you know, shot out towards us barking like crazy. And my friend was going slow. It was a long driveway. And I looked off into the distance and I saw something laying on the ground. And we got closer and I realized it was my grandmother. And I jumped out of the car and I ran to her and I'm not, I'm trying not to cry, but, um, <clears throat> it's okay. Um, it was the most tragic thing that has ever happened. Oh my God. And she was laying there and right then and there, everything in my life came crashing down. Um, I was so torn. I mean, I've never felt that kind of pain. I, I, I imagine it would be a pain of losing a child. That's how much it hurt. And from there, I took a nosedive. I was doing every drug I could get my hands on. Um, so she was it, she was dead, Emily. Is a, yes. Oh, she was dead. I'm so sorry. It, yes, thank you. It took me it took me a long time to get over that, but you know, I'm happy now that I can hold back my tears because. I, I honestly believe me finding her, that's how it was supposed to happen. Because strangely, two days prior to me finding her, I had gotten a Valentine's Day card in, in the mail from her. She died on February 14th. She died on Valentine's Day, and I got a card from her. And nobody else did. It was really strange. But um, so I think I was meant to find her. And it, I think I was meant to go through all the things that, you know, I went through. Yep. yep. Um, 
So after that, everything just got really bad. Um, I, I was stealing. I was going to um, uh, like getting a, a cash advance checks and not being able to pay for it on my car. I tore the radio out of my car and sold it. Um, but what really happened what, when it got really bad is I had a part-time job at a pizza shop and we had a delivery driver who, um, one day asked to borrow my car and I was like, sure, why not? And I let her borrow my car and I said, as long as you put gas in it, that'll be great. She got back from whatever she was doing and she just left me a note and said, look in your car. And I got off work and I got my car and there was a little uh, piece of paper over my cup holder. And I took the paper off and there was a little rock inside of it. And I was like, oh my God, that's crack. And I was like, oh, I don't want to do crack. You know, I just do coke. I don't want to be a crackhead because, you know, it's a lot better to be doing coke than be called a crackhead. Well, I didn't throw the crack away. I drove home with the crack and I looked at it and I was contemplating. I was like, should I do it? Should I not? And finally I looked up how to do it and I did it. And that was it. That it went from zero to 100 in 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, the, the high from smoking crack, I can't even explain it. It's like, you see the world for what it really is. And you think that you are the best, that you're the smartest, the strongest, the prettiest, everything. You, the confidence is through the roof and you can't stop talking. You just, yeah, it was. Emily, sorry for interrupting, but because I'm a bit of a novice on some of these things, what is the difference between cocaine and crack? So I'm not really sure. So cocaine, so they, they cook crack and they like, um, I guess they make it stronger by cooking it. I know they use like something and they put it in a microwave to cook it down into like its purest form. Um, and okay. it's much cheaper than buying cocaine. Okay. Um, but I, yeah, I'm not really sure. But That's fine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So crack was it. Yes, crack with it. Um, so from there, um, I was, I ended up being homeless at one point. Well, hold on. yeah, I was homeless at one point. And um, I, so I think I skipped over a part and I have to go in reverse a little bit um, because I can't forget this part of my story. And I actually called my mom today and said, mom, I have to ask you this question because I'm going on a podcast. <laughs> when did you send me to Utah? And she said, oh, wow, let me think about it. And in 2005, and she said, I guess I was 20. In 2005, she sent me to Redcliffe Ascent out in Utah. It was a camp for bad kids. And um, I got, so I got on the plane. I went out there. I got off the plane. Two people were there to pick me up. And I, there was a blue Suburban, I got in it, and they asked me to blindfold myself. And they handed me a blindfold. Now, mind you, I'm a 20-year-old drug addict who has, I don't, don't do authority very well. Um, <laughs> very strong-headed. 
So anyways, I was like, whatever, blindfold myself. And we took a ride. It was like an hour long ride and finally stopped. And they say, you can unfold, you know, take off the blindfold and it's pitch black everywhere. And I'm like, oh my God, where has my mom sent me? Get out of the car. We're in the desert and they take me to the back of the Suburban, open up the trunk and there's a tarp laid out a blue tarp laid out and it has little baggies in it with like dried food and um what do you call it uh, meal ready kits like you just pour hot water in it to make the meal and i was i was shocked i was like i don't know what is going on but then the lady asked me for my shoes and i was like what you want my shoes and she was like yes you have to earn your shoes so I took off my shoes and she gave me a thick pair of wool socks. And so I folded up my um, my tarp and off in the distance, there was a fire and I could hear laughter and people talking and they walked me over and they introduced me to the, there was a bunch of kids. I don't remember how many kids, but it was like eight or nine kids. <clears throat> and they were all sitting around the fire talking and, um, and I remember there's one kid, she had stabbed her mother. And I was thinking to myself, oh my God, I'm a drug addict. I'm not violent. And I don't know if I this is where I should be. Anyways, we go to sleep that night and I slept on my tarp. And I had a teeny tiny blanket. And the next morning woke up and it was beautiful so mind you i got there during the night so i couldn't see anything it was just dark but in the morning it was like this crisp feeling and these beautiful red rocks giant red rocks out in the middle of utah and it was absolutely beautiful and i was like oh okay i can do this because my family was a nature family hiking camping so i was like okay i can do this all right and the head guy came over and he was like, we got to go into town, do some paperwork, blah, blah, blah. I was like, cool. So we got in the Suburban and we went into town and um, he lined everybody up and each person would go into a room, they would shut the door. And the kids were coming out and I was like, what are they doing in there? And she was like, they're taking our blood. And I was like, what? Taking our blood? And... I didn't do needles. I know you, you see me. I have tattoos now, but okay. So finally got to my turn. I went back in the room and I was like, look, I don't do needles. I'm, you can't do that. And he was like, you have to. And I was like, no, why? Why would you need to take my blood? It didn't make any sense to me. So my stubbornness and my authority side of came out. And the, the mean Emily was like, nope, not happening. Not today. And he said, if you don't do it, you can't stay. And I said, fine, give me my shoes. And so they gave me my shoes and I said, give me my backpack. They gave me my backpack and I didn't have a phone or anything out there, nothing. So I got my backpack and they said, if you walk out that door, you can't come back. And I was like, screw all of you, screw you. Where was this, Emily? Where were you? This is at Red Cliff Ascent in Utah. And they've actually, I think they actually got shut down for a while because there was some abuse issues. I don't know the full details, but it was, 
you know, some things they did to the kids, like, because I didn't stay more than one day, not even a full day. I didn't get to experience what the other kids went through. Right. Um, but I walked out that door and just the mountains, there was one road, one way, and then another road, like a T. And there was a sign, a little sign, a green sign with an airplane on it. And I was like, that way. So I put my boot bag on and I started walking. And <clears throat> I walked, at first I was angry and I was like cursing everybody and <laughs> this sucks, whatever. And then that turned into tears. And uh, I was just so sad. I just wanted to go home. And I kept walking, walking, walking. And a car passed like an hour into my walk. And I was like flagging them down, like stop. And they just went faster by me. And it was horrible. Well, you it were also, hot. weren't you Weren't you also in some sort of withdrawal at that point? Withdrawal? So no? withdrawing from cocaine is, um, it is bad. But at this point, I wasn't doing crack yet. And I'm sorry, I jumped ahead of my story and we're going back in time. It's okay. But the cocaine, it was, I think my, I was, um, what do you call it? My um, adrenaline was so high that it wasn't really affecting me. I see. Um, and I think at, at this point, I wasn't so too deep into my addiction at this Un point. Understood. Um, um, so I had walked for about three hours and I found this truck on the side of the road. And so I ran over to the truck looking to see if there was any keys in it. And there were no keys, but I found a knife. And I said, oh, I'll take the knife in case, you know, some mountain lion comes out, get me. So I get <laughs> the knife. <laughs> and I keep walking. And about another hour and a half into my walk, there was a teeny house on the left. And I said, thank you, God. Okay, get to this house. And I ran to the house and I knocked on the door. And this old lady opened the door. And as soon as I saw her, I just started crying bawling my eyes out and she opened the door and she let me inside and it was just her and her husband and <clears throat> so they brought me inside and she made me a sandwich we talked and she called her son over and her son worked at another bad kids camp and he wanted to take me to his camp and I was like no I want to go home and so I begged them please take me to the airport so they drove me to the airport, which was like an hour and a half drive. So had I not found that house, I would have been walking for who knows how long. But anyways, I got to the airport and I called my dad and he was so angry because they were divorced at this time. He said, I told you not to go, you know, call, you know, call the office manager. So I called our office manager and she got me a flight back to Charleston and left at like one o'clock in the morning. And my friend picked me up. Of course, my bad friend picked me up. And <laughs> yeah, so I'm sorry I had to jump back in because that's a crazy part. That's okay, of but that's my story. It it's okay. It's a it's um it's a major part of your story. And yeah, I don't. Yeah, I I've heard. You know, I don't. We try not to diss rehabs because there's a lot of different types of rehab out there that work for different people. But it certainly doesn't sound like that one was one that was going to help you. Yeah, I, no, I don't think so. <laughs> Not at all. Um, so after that, um, and I'm so sorry. I, I, like I said, you know, memory gaps. 
Um, it's okay. We're going to go back in time. Um, so after my grandmother died, um, everything was getting really bad. And this is before the, at the crack. Um, I, one night there was a hurricane coming and the hurricane was actually named Emily. And oh. we decided to have a hurricane party. And I drank uh, about a gallon of shroom tea, mushroom tea, hallucinogenic shrooms. And oh. I did an entire eight ball. And it was, I had never been this messed up before. I was seeing things and my trip started to go bad. And I was laying in my bed upstairs and I was talking to my grandmother and I said, grandma, I just want to come home. I just want to come home to you. I just want to die. And I reached over the bed and there was this large knife and it wasn't like a sharp knife. It, it was just like a first show kind of knife. And I grabbed it and I just started sawing on my arm wow. and it was so dull and I was so high that it didn't hurt. And I just remember sawing on it. And I guess at one point I just blacked out. And I woke up and I had the, the knife in my hand and my, my arm was just kind of not so deep that it would have killed me, but because the knife was so dull, it just kind of shredded through it and it was really gnarly. Wow. And I was just, I was crying at this point. I was so sick and so sad and just wanting someone to please help me. And I called my mom and my mom wouldn't come get me. She was like, I'm not coming to get you. And I was just so sad. So I wrapped my arm in toilet paper and I started walking. And I walked um, from um, another part of our city to the hospital, which was about an hour walk. And I got to the hospital and I didn't go in. I sat on these little um, benches outside and a nurse saw me. And she walked over to me and she said, do you need help? And I, I said, yes, please help me. And they brought me into the hospital. They looked at my arm and they said, I didn't need stitches, but they cleaned it up. And um, this, uh, the people from the psychiatric unit came over and talked with me. And they, you know, they asked the questions like, was this a suicide attempt or, you know, what was going on? And I told them that, I just wanted to go home. I just wanted to go be with my grandmother. And I couldn't decipher whether or not this was an actual suicide attempt or, or what, because I was so high. But anyways, I ended up getting admitted to the psychiatric unit here at MUSC in downtown Charleston, which is the Medical University of South Carolina in the psychiatric unit. And I was there for two weeks. And I really... I just didn't, I, I don't think, they weren't asking me the right questions. They they didn't seem like they actually cared. And that was mm -hmm. the big thing. The nurses, like the people on staff, like the, not the nurses, but like the orderly people who come in and like get your towels, help the bathrooms. They treated us like we were like nothing, like we were trash. You Animals. Know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, literally. And the doctors, the psychiatrists, they didn't seem like they cared. Um, hmm. And I don't know how to describe it because unless you've been an addict, I don't think you can treat an addict. And I hate to say that, 
Um, no, I think you make a very, very good point because I don't think that someone who has never been addicted to drugs understands what the addict is going through completely. I don't think I don't think they do. Yeah, absolutely. Not at all. Um, so I began to play the, the psychiatrist. I would play them, act like I was doing great, you know, fabulous, um, you know, and they're like, you know, you're showing good signs. So, you know, if you keep this up, you'll be out in a few days. Um, so I was out in a few days and the very next day I was getting hot. Right. And so, so we'll go, <clears throat> we'll go back into, now we'll jump back into my crack use. Um, let's crack. do that, Emily, but then let's see if we can kind of move to where you had your only, you know, your epiphany or your point of no return so that we can kind of yeah. get to that point. Yes, absolutely. <clears throat> so. Um, I'll just jump straight into that. Um, I was on my way to get some crack and I drove into this area. It's a well-known drug area. And when you're high or thinking about getting high, you're not afraid of cops seeing you. So I drove into the neighborhood and I got my crack and I was pulling out of the neighborhood and I saw a cop car. <clears throat> and of course you see a white lady in this area, it looks suspicious, but I was like, Emily, keep it together, keep it together. And I pulled onto our interstate <clears throat> and the cop car got behind me and within 45 seconds, he lit me up. And I was like, oh my God, heart racing. I put the crack in my purse and I pulled over. And <clears throat> I don't know what I was thinking, but I, he came up to my window and he was like, you know, do you know why I stopped you? And my mirror, my rear view mirror had been broken off. He was like, I pulled you over for your rear view. I was like, oh my God. Because he didn't have anything else to pull me on. Because everything else on my car was fine. So he, he asked for my license and registration. I'm shaking. And he sees me shaking. He knows that I have drugs. And so I give him my stuff. And he's walking back to his car. And something told me, run. So I put my car in drive and I took off. He was like at my passenger door when I took off and I looked in my mirror and he was running to his car and a chase started and I led them on a high speed chase for it lasted no more than maybe eight minutes. And I ended up crashing in the back of a lady's house in downtown Charleston. Um, I had, gone through her driveway and cut through her backyard and her grass was so high I couldn't see and there was a tree stump I drove my car onto a tree stump and I couldn't move and they pulled in behind me and they got out and they were screaming you know you know give up whatever they were screaming and I put my hands up and they broke my window with their hasp and they drug me through it and as I was uh, they drug me through it and I was like leaning against my car and they shot me with their taser. I had already given up, but they shot me with their taser twice. I got, I got tased twice. And I remember laying on the, I was, I planted, face planted on the ground. And I just remember laying there going, Emily, what have you done? Sounds what like you royally you ticked them off, Emily. I really fucked up. Yeah. Big time. 
You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com or call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. Sometimes the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. So, um, tased me. I had, since I'd gone through the window, I had cuts on my face, on my ears, um, on the back of my arms. And the EMS unit got there and they cleaned me up. And I, all, people started swarming the car. Tons of people. We were, I was in a predominantly black um, part of the of Charleston there is like Charleston is like section you have this rich white people section and then it goes into more of the the black older black area neighborhood and I had crashed into an old black lady's um yard okay so everybody came swarming the car and I remember laying in the back of the car face down so people couldn't see me because the neighbors were banging on the on the car the cops didn't get them away. So they were banging on the car going, yeah, white girl, yeah, white girl, yeah, white girl. And I was just crying my eyes out. And all of a sudden, the door on the other side of the car opened up and a police officer got in. And it was the um, chief of a police of downtown. And he said to me, he said, why would you do this? What have you done? He said, you're a beautiful young girl. You know, you have so much to live for. Why would you do this to yourself? And I was just crying saying, I don't know. I don't know. So I got taken to the jail of Charleston City. They had a small holding cell there and it was tiny. And I had been arrested by North Charleston. But since I crashed in Charleston City, they took me to their jail. But North Charleston was fighting to have me. So it was a war to get me, and, and finally, North Charleston won, and they took me to our big jail. And in jail, I was in solitary confinement for a week because they thought I was a danger to myself. So I had no clothes. They put me in a suicide suit, and there was no bed in there. There was a, just a mat on the floor, a tiny like metal toilet attached to the wall with a sink that was attached to it. And whenever I had to go shower, you know, they, you had to put your hands through the door behind you, of course, and you walk to the shower. And this shower, Joni, it was like maybe three feet wide, three by three. 
and you'd get in it and they would close it and they would lock you in it and you would stand there you could barely move and you'd have to push the button to get the water to come out and mm. i would just let the water the water run over me and ever since i was little water has been like um it's like it's my comfort ever yeah. since i was a little girl i just had to be in the bathtub or be in the ocean or be in a pool and i just would let that water run over me and i would constantly ask myself emily what's going on why did you do this to yourself how could you do this to yourself and so in jail um i i had a moment where i told god i said god if you get me out of this i will never ever do this again i promise you and i told my grandmother i'm so sorry i let you down and so <clears throat> finally i got moved into where everybody else was and I was in jail for 32 days and um, I learned that I was being charged with something pretty serious so I was facing 23 years in prison Wow! and I was terrified I was so terrified and I finally when I got after 32 days they had um, my uh, probation hearing and or I can't remember what kind of hearing it was, but it was to lower my bond because my bond was so high, I couldn't get out. So at this hearing at 30 days, they lowered it enough to where I could get out. And my boyfriend at the time got me out. And um, I remember from there, I was like, that's it. Never, ever again. And you couldn't, at that moment, you, you could come to me with drugs and I wouldn't touch it because I was on a mission, <clears throat> excuse me. Nobody was gonna get in my way. I was on a mission to prove not only to God that I could do it and to my grandmother, but to my family, because mm -hmm. I had destroyed that relationship with my family. Yeah. I had you know, stolen my sister's debit card and drained her entire account. I had stolen money out of my parents' wallets, you know? And so um, I didn't have an actual uh, date court date so I had no idea but I had a bondsman and I, to this day I'm so grateful for this bondsman her name is Rhonda Smith and she told me that I was the first female she had uh, bonded out in many years because she said women are flighty she said women always run and I told her I said well you're not going to get that out of me I won't <laughs> run and from this day forward, the judge didn't ask me, she didn't ask me, but I said, I'm gonna take a drug test here with you every Friday until I go to court. And she said, okay. And so from that day forward, I would take a drug test at her, at her office every Friday. I had to pay her money every Friday. And um, for that next year, I just, I did everything I could to win the trust back. And I also, during this time, I jumped into fitness and fitness became my new drug. Um, <laughs> I had. There so are much worse things than fitness. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So over that next year, I dove into fitness and I lost a bunch of weight. I got really in shape. And um, finally, I, my court, I got a letter in the mail for my court date and all of a sudden, that happiness that I had built over that year of getting sober instantly like that, I got fearful. 
because this was it. This was going to determine whether or not I was going to go to prison because I had been arrested like eight times prior to this for check fraud, for theft, for all these things. So I was was like, oh my God, you know, I, this is not the first time I've made a mistake. This is the ninth time I've made a mistake. And this is a really big mistake. Right. And so uh, we got all of my drug tests. We put them in a big trash bag and my lawyer, myself and my family, we went to court and I wasn't the first one to go up. But finally, once I got up and it was my turn and I stood up, and the judge read my charges and he was like, you know, oh my, you know, wow, you have a long list of da 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 da. And I stood up and he was like, do you have anything to say? And I told him everything that I've done over the past year and how I promised him that he knew that if he let me out on the streets, I would never mess up and I would do everything in my power to help my community. And then he asked my family if they had anything to say. And my father stood up and I didn't expect my dad to stand up. Mm. And I've never seen my dad cry, but it's the first time I ever saw my dad cry. Uh, and he cried because he was so proud of me, the change that I have made. <clears throat> wow. Excuse <clears throat> me. <clears throat> so yeah, so um, the judge, he he said i'm going to give you a chance and he gave me um two years probation suspended four years and what that means is had i messed up within my two years of probation i would go away for four years and i was so grateful and just i was shocked but when he said it I didn't know what it meant. So I looked at my lawyer like, oh my, am I going to prison? Am I going to prison for four years? And he was like, no, Emily, you're not going to prison. You got your second chance. And so, yeah. So, you know, from there, um, from there. I'm I'm going to interrupt you. I'm just going to say, you know, very, very well done you. I mean, you know, we've talked to enough people in recovery that we know it's not easy and well done. It's because you said it's been 14 years for you, right? 14, yeah. 14 years is past April. That's amazing. I mean, it's yeah. just amazing. You should get, you should contact the judge and get him to listen to the podcast. <laughs> I, yeah. I'm actually, I'm thinking about um, reaching out. So I don't know if you know this, but my husband is a police officer. Oh, I think you mentioned that. Yeah. So, yeah. So I ended up breaking up with this one guy who ended up being, well, while he helped me during my journey of getting sober that first year, he ended up being um, a detriment to to my sobriety and to my happiness because I dove into fitness so hard and I ended up getting like all these fitness magazines and I wanted to be like the girls on the cover and he ended up being really abusive and I said this is not what I need and I left him and I went and lived with my sister and <laughs> this is so crazy I told my sister I'm not going to date anybody for the next year you know no famous way. last words <laughs> yes and but during this time I had gotten a coach for bodybuilding because bodybuilding he didn't want me to bodybuild he didn't like me. he didn't like the attention I was getting because I lost so much weight and I was getting shredded and so I was, I would think I was like 
10 weeks out from my first bodybuilding show when I broke up with him. And so I was really into the gym. And I told my sister, no guys for the next year. And literally, it wasn't two months later, I was in the gym doing my card, not two months, two weeks later, I was in the gym doing my cardio. And this guy walks in and my sister was with me. And she was like, I was like, oh my God, he's so cute. And she was like, no, and like, he's a cop. I was like, I don't care. He's, oh my gosh, you know? And so crazy. Next thing you know, we're, you know, a few weeks later, we're dating and we've been inseparable since. And so how long have you been married? We've, we've been married for five years this uh, July, but together for 12 years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. So yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. And it's crazy because he's not like a regular cop. He's a, he's always been on the vice unit teams and he's always told my story to the people he arrests to help you know um but yeah so I used fitness to keep me in recovery but I also learned during that time that you're you might be I don't know if you've heard this but you might be sober but you're you're not recovered or you're in sobriety or you're in recovery, but you're not recovered. And those are two very different things. And I use it also as a mental aspect because I was in, I was, I called myself recovered, but I hadn't recovered my mind because I hadn't gone through and healed the, the trauma. So I was still a very angry person throughout these years, very angry, insecure. Um, and I've actually been called a narcissist by my father during this time. Because I had only cared about myself and I didn't see that. And um, it actually took like going through my bodybuilding phase to actually recover. But I would never touch a drug because I didn't want to. It was more like I didn't want to break that, that, you know, promise I had made to everybody. And so I never desired that. Um, But when I was bodybuilding, that's when um, I really got, I ended up getting really sick and mentally sick um, where that turned into because addiction, fitness can be an addiction and it can quickly lead you into um, binge eating disorder or bulimia or exercise bulimia. It can be very dangerous. And for an addict to go into that, it's a very fine line. And I think that you have to have somebody monitoring you if you're going to go into fitness and use fitness as the tool to help you in your recovery. Because I didn't use a 12-step program. I did it solely on myself and my fitness. So it led me into then for the next 10 years, I suffered with an eating disorder and exercise bulimia. And that I, I have to say, Joni, that my eating disorder, the recovery from that was worse than my drug addiction. Huh. And I don't know how, but both of them, there was points in both where coming down from drugs where I wanted to kill myself. I just wanted to die. But then being not on drugs and in my eating disorder and hating myself so much that I would beg God to not let me wake up. I wanted to die. I hated myself so much. 
and it was a very strange thing. And what I learned in my recovery from my eating disorder is I, I didn't love myself. And throughout all of this, I never loved myself. And so I started working on that. And so I, I like to say that I'm recovered in 2019. I recovered from my eating disorder and I recovered my mind. And now it's, I don't know how to explain it. I, well, I think, so I think you did explain it because I think if you don't love yourself and obviously, uh, well, this is evaluation from, from me, but if you're doing something like, you know, anorexia or bulimia, there's gotta be something there you don't like about yourself and you have to come to terms with that. And it sounds like in 2019, you actually came to terms with that and, you know, learn to love yourself. And, and that in itself is a huge message for people listening because you can't just substitute one addiction for another. We know that you can't substitute one drug for another, but yeah. it, it sounds like in your case, you were trying to substitute um, an addiction to food and exercise for an addiction to drugs. And, you know, what under what underlies that it can be something as simple as just loving yourself or yeah. not loving yourself, I guess I would say. Yeah. And I want to say something. You just said addiction to food. And I just want I really want to let people know that I don't think that you can be addicted to food. And the reason why I say that is when I learn to. um build a relationship like my relationship to food was off i looked at food like this food is bad and or i can't have that because it'll make me fat when i learned that it's just food it became easy and I, can i plug something real quick is i know okay? why not <laughs> okay um the book intuitive eating uh, okay. It saved my life from my eating disorder. It taught okay. me that you can't be addicted to food. It's just food because a drugs and food is completely different. In order to stay sober and uh, and recovered, you have to have abstinence. But with food, when you do abstinence from the foods that you are triggering, you end up binging on them. Because I used to go to Overeaters Anonymous and they follow the 12-step model. Yep. And every person in there had been in there for many years and they had not recovered. And I learned it's because they were um, abstaining from their trigger foods, which led them to binging. Yep. You know, the only thing, the only thing part of that that I would disagree with is that I firmly believe that sugar is addictive. And um, is it like a drug? Is it as bad as a drug? No. But I do, I do believe it's addictive, but we could that's a whole other podcast we could talk about yeah, we could talk about yeah. food and everything in another yeah. one so what are you but, doing now i think you wanted you want to get out and be able to tell your story more now right yeah absolutely um so i started my blog a couple of years ago and i would just write a little bit and then i would kind of back off because i would get scared that nobody would want to read it <laughs> and this over the past few years i've gotten more motivated because I've just seen what's happening here in my city and it's, it's really tragic. And, you know, there's a young girl 
who's now holding a sign up that says homeless, please help me. And she can't be older than 19. And she looks normal. And that's what terrifies me. It's like, oh my God, she looks okay now. How quickly can it be that she goes from looking okay to looking sickly? Right. But not just that. When you're, when I was in jail, that nobody, I was in jail for 30 days, right? Nobody came to say, hey, would you like to do this program? Would you like to do this to see if it can help you? Nobody came to help me. And that's the, that's what I see is the biggest disconnect is, you know, people talk about the in and out of jail. You're just going to go in there and the guards would say, oh, I'll see you in a few weeks. That's how they treated you. I'll just see you in a few weeks. Right. That's because there's no program. You, we can't, we don't want you to go to prison and get help. We want to get you when you go to jail. That's when it happens. And there's no program. And so I've reached out to our um, our sheriff uh, who runs the jail. I wrote a letter to the director of the jail to say, please, let's start a program. We have to, this is the front line. It's when they go to jail. This is the, the, the middle ground before they go to prison. Because if we can get them help while they're in jail, you know, they're not going to come back. If we can have something that is even like when they come out of jail, they have something that's going to help them, a program, a group that's going to help them. And so that's where I'm trying to get is I want to stop. I want to, I don't even know the words to, to say is we have to get them when they get in jail. We it's, can't let them go to prison. Yeah. It's know? like stopping the revolving door. Of, exactly. You know, going into jail and out of jail and into jail, eventually into prison and out of prison and back in. And I think that that's, that's a huge, it's a huge thing. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very good purpose. I, I thank you for working on that. If someone wanted to read your blog, how do they find your blog? What is the web address for your blog? It's www.journeytocourage.com journey and, to courage i like that yeah i use journey to courage because i it's all encompassing i think we have to have courage like courage to say to speak up to say to ask for help courage to you know i believe courage is an everyday life thing that we have to have that's why i call it journey to courage yeah um but I, I wanted to mention something real quick um and i don't know if you know this but um so I've had back surgery. I hurt my back really bad in 2009. And <clears throat> I started going to a spine specialist and they always um, wrote me prescriptions and I never took them. I said, don't, I was like, no, I don't take those. I'm, I'm drug free. I don't take any of that. And so from 2009 to 2013, I would never take a prescription drug because I was just no drugs. Right. And um, I ended up uh, in 2013, I got to a point where uh, my nerve was being pressed so much that I lost the function of my left leg. And the pain was so severe that my husband would have to pick me up out of the bathtub and carry me. It, the pain, Joni, I can't even describe the pain to you. It was, it was horrific pain. So in 2013, I had back surgery. And that was the first time I had tried pain medication. I was in the hospital and on on a drip and i didn't like it but it took my pain away right so after back surgery i don't know if you have time 
to go into this. Do we have time? Is that sure. okay? Sure. Okay. Um, so I got out of surgery and I was in recovery and they prescribed me pain medication. And at this point, the pain was so severe, I couldn't walk. So I took my pain medication and I took it like I was prescribed. It didn't, was never like I wanted more because my drug of choice was an upper and that kind of medicine, it made me sleepy and tired. <clears throat> so I never got addicted to it. I never felt the need to use more. And also I never felt the need to use more because my drive to stay sober was so strong that nothing could break it. And I, I, I was even able to drink alcohol during this time. Um, but I never drank in excess. You know, and I know that's I, very strange. I, I'm sorry to interrupt. I got to tell you, I think that what you just said there is probably one of the most valuable things you have shared with us today. I believe that a lot of people in recovery, they believe that were they to take painkillers, they would be off and running and back down the road to addiction. Or, you know, I think that sometimes one of the things that's taught in some of the alcohol programs are that you can never have a sip of alcohol. And I, it's not that I don't believe that because I believe it's true for some people, but the fact that it's not true for you and that you've experienced it, I think that that's, I, I think it's huge. It's a major, major point that yeah. you were able to take pain pills and not abuse them. And I understand that your drug of choice was an upper and not a downer, but still a drug, you know, yeah. can offer some forms of release and escape, but you didn't go down that road. And I, I, that's huge. That's a great story, Emily. Yeah. Well, I, you know, it's my, it's led into, I'm actually, I'm actually on a long-term pain, uh, pain management program. And I'll get into it. Um, so throughout the year, so from after 2013, after my prescription ran out, I didn't take it anymore. Didn't have it anymore. Um, but it started to progress. My back got worse and worse. And so I'll we'll jump to 20, uh, 2019. I was had been going to a pain management place and they did injections on me. I did numerous injections and nothing was working. I fractured my back in the early 2019 and um, they wanted to prescribe me some pain medication. And I said, no, I don't think so. Is there something else we can try? And they said, well, there is this new medicine called Velbuca. And I said, oh, what's Velbuca? And it's buprenorphine. I don't, I, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's, yeah. So the opioid antagonist. So it blocks part of the receptor in your brain. And I said, well, let's see if we can try it. Because at this point, I could not work. I couldn't walk. I was in a wheelchair. And my life was being ruined and destroyed. So, and my spine doctor said the only next step was back surgery. And I couldn't go through that back surgery pain again. Because right. I just couldn't do it. So I said, okay, let's try the Belbuca. <clears throat> and this is where I want to give hope to other people. Because... Back pain is, uh, it's invisible, you know, people can't see it. So it's hard to, to, for people, it feels like people don't believe me when I say the pain is so severe. Um, and I actually made a video about, um, being a recovered drug addict and chronic back pain and pain medication. 
Well, specifically Belbuca. Uh, Belbuca is a uh, little square sheet that you put in your cheek and it's uh, it works for 12 hours. And it is beautiful. So you get a feeling from like regular opioids, they give you a feeling. 100% they give you a feeling. Right. But Belbuca gives no feeling, but 100% relief. It's Interesting. the first medicine I've ever taken that's given me back my life. Interesting. Absolutely. And um, I've never had the urge. What's that? I was just going to say, you know, it's it's good to know because, well, first of all, a lot of people get started on painkillers because they have actual physical pain. And I think that down the road, they don't know how to manage the physical pain because, sometimes the physical pain doesn't go away. And so, you know, it's interesting that you found a solution that works for you and that could work for others. Yes, absolutely. And I've, I've tried telling my doctors over there, like, please, like, don't prescribe any more pills. Belbuca works. And, and, I, and I believe that an addict can use this medicine if they have real chronic pain. Because you do have to go through steps of, like, you know, physical therapy, exercise to try to fix your pain. But I do believe 100% if you are in a, you're strongly recovered and you have that mindset that nothing mess with you, I believe definitely Belbuca 100% can help. It has given me my life and I've been on it now for two years. And I, and And, I, and the only thing I would just add to that is for anybody listening is, you know, just make sure that you know, you check with your doctor because obviously it is a medication that, you know, is working for Emily, but, you know, may or may not be something that you can use. Emily, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. So many different aspects to your story. And as I say, sometimes, you know, addiction is addiction and there's similarities, but everybody's story is different. And I know that your story is going to resonate with people and somebody's going to listen to it. And they're going to go, oh, yeah, that's what I experienced. And they'll get help. And that's the whole purpose, you know, of the podcast and, and having interviews like yours. So thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you so much, Joni, for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Emily's story is quite something. She has been through a lot, both with her drug addiction and further with difficulties with food and you know she still suffers in some ways with her back pain but she is such a positive young woman and she so wants to give back and I just think that her story is inspirational and be sure and check out her blog and because right off the top of my head I cannot remember the name of it but if you watch the YouTube video I will put it up in a slide toward the end of the video if you know someone that needs help please reach out today don't wait don't think that um, they'll get better on their own if they could do that they probably already would have if you need help reach out there's a lot of places that you can reach out to A lot of them are anonymous. A lot of them just want to help. We'll be back again next week with another interview. Y'all take care. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com.
Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.